And but just you know, do you see that flash on my screen? That happens a lot when I'm on anything. There's like this weird flash that happens in the background. It's like you'll see it again as we go along. It's very weird. I'm going to keep my eyes on it because uh, uh, there's 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 definitely some some strange uh, some strange stuff when it comes to the when it comes to this podcast. We've had some some anomalies. <laughs> Um, okay, George, do you feel, you feel ready to go? Oh, I'm always ready. Okay, sweet. Now let me just read our little intro here so we can be as professional as pos- as it's possible to be from your parents' basement. <clears throat> so welcome old and new listeners alike to We Talk About Dead People. <laughs> It's a very special time to be joining us for this episode because this is, in fact, the first time we've actually interviewed somebody. Which is weird to say, I guess. We've had guest hosts on to tell stories from history, old and weird and strange stories, but we've never actually had on some other researcher and, you might say, speaker just to talk about what they're passionate about and to tell the stories that they've discovered while interrogating the depths of the historical narrative. This is an interview in two parts, because the first time we recorded this with uh, our guest, we had some technical issues, and I would like to thank Squadcast for being an utter failure, um, and for having a useless helpline and support system. So, to all the podcasters out there listening, I recommend never using Squadcast. First thing that happened was the system failed and didn't tell us it was failing while we were recording, so we lost about an hour's worth of content, but only from one audio track. So I have an hour and a half of me just sitting there asking questions, and about 26 minutes of getting answers from our guest, Howdy McCoskey. And uh, the support team blamed me and my my guest for using the wrong browser, uh, which is obviously insane for a lot of different reasons, but hey, I'm sure Squadcast would have something else to say. Nevertheless, we uh, switched to Zoom um, and brought Howdy back to do a a re-recording of several of the questions, and you know, at first I was kind of upset because we couldn't capture the lightning in the bottle. That was our first uh, swing at this thing, but I'm actually kind of pleased because a lot of the information we covered in our first version of this interview is already covered in a lot of other interviews with Howdy. Um, you can get information about the World's Fair in particular, really, really detailed and deep information from other interviews with Howdy, and I recommend either Freeman uh, Fly's podcast or Pro Triple Seven's podcast to get the uh, full scoop on the World's Fair. Um, but... I'm actually kind of glad we had a second interview because we ended up covering a much broader range of topics uh, instead of just covering the World's Fair. And I think that's important because with the number of interviews that uh, Howdy's been doing regarding the World's Fair, it tends to to be the case that there's a lot of repeat information. But I'm pleased to say that even though it was our first interview and ironically our second as well, um, we did manage to cover not only a breadth of topics, but we got into a certain depth that is, I guess you could say, somewhat common when we talk about dead people. We joke around, and we have fun, and we tell stories, um, but usually they're scripted, and usually they're somewhat protected. But in this interview, we have to be aware that uh, 
some of the topics we're talking about are very interesting um, and are swiftly becoming much more popular, but they're also strange uh, to a lot of mainstream audiences, and there uh, there there's some dangerous questions asked. As you know, with me, I'm much more uh, interested in pursuing those dangerous questions uh, than a lot of people, but um, I think this was maybe the first opportunity we really had to just sort of drill down into what history actually is. And the more I look at it and the more I go into it, and I, I feel sad that we lost this part of the first version of the interview, we did talk about the importance of knowing history, but also being aware of what it is. Because increasingly, as as I study it and as I go along with this show, I start to realize that it isn't what it appears to be necessarily. And we always argue about sources and um, whether or not information's good and that sort of thing, but we never really talk about what information does, what it is. Um, and we did talk about that a little bit on our Psychological Warfare episode, but could it be possible? Is it, is it possible to make a culture forget itself completely? Is it possible to transplant a fake story onto a fresh culture with no roots? Is it possible to essentially reprogram an entire society? These are questions that we discuss with Howdy. Um, but also these are questions that relate, ironically enough, to the legendary William Tell episode. Uh, is it possible to program an entire society with a history that's essentially made up? Is it? Well, from a communications perspective, pretty much yes. But you must decide for yourself. I wanted to give out that little caveat before we began, because this is not typical of we talk about dead people. We typically like to tell stories from a comedic perspective and just go with the mainstream narrative. Um, but Howdy is a little bit more critical than that. So, if you're ready and if you feel like you can handle this information, please proceed. And if you're worried and you would rather just listen to the mainstream stories and uh, stay in that little zone, that's fine too, because that's kind of the whole point of the show. We don't know what it is, and all we can talk about is what's written down and uh, different versions of the narrative of where we're coming from. Anyway, if, if you are ready, here we go. All right, welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a very special episode um, <laughs> where we'll be finally putting our money where our mouth is and covering some of the, uh, the less mainstream aspects of, of history. And there's a reason we're doing this, and the reason is, as I look into history more and more, things get stranger and stranger. And many times on We Talk About Dead People, we have uncovered some very strange stuff that's in the history books that just feels like a joke. Now, as a comedy podcast, we can fool around with ideas a little more than the average history podcast, which is why we're speaking with our guest today. I would like to introduce you all to our guest, Howdy McCoskey, a researcher and writer who is unafraid of going into forbidden territory when it comes to history and thinking. Howdy's been making the rounds in the podcasting world for a while now, appearing on many famous podcasts, including Crow 777 and many more. He has written several books as well, including Exposing the Expositions, Falling for Truth, and The Power of Then. And as I was listening to these interviews, I became more and more fascinated, and I thought to myself, we're a history podcast, and we're a big joke, so why not us? And with that, I would like to say hello to Howdy. 
Welcome to We Talk About Dead People. Howdy. Hey, thanks, guys. Good to, good to see you. It's a pleasure to be talking with you, sir. Um, very proud to <laughs> introduce our first interview on We Talk About Dead People. We tend to keep a pretty closed uh, closed door. We don't we don't like many foreigners. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, it's hard to know where to begin with the with topics such as these. So I sort of generally put in this outline here. I'd love to hear sort of the outline of your story and how you, well, where you find yourself today and how you got there in regards to your study and research surrounding history and architecture. Wow. Um, you know, I guess I was, I was a, I was never a normal person, but I, I was relatively normal for most of my life. Um, hockey player, uh, as a teenager went to university and got a history degree, which, kind of blows my mind now and I think how much I just accepted when I was in university without questioning even more than I did. Uh, when that was nearly complete, a uh, combination of uh, my father had stolen all of my money and I had an ex-girlfriend get murdered. So the combination of those two things kind of sent me on a bit of a spiral. I uh, went to Australia for a couple of years and while I was there I became a stand-up comedian. So I worked as a comic for 10 years and in the course of being a comedian, I, I was getting more and more depressed, more and more unhappy with my life. And I was at the point I actually wanted to kill myself. I was um, trying to find the best way to do it that wouldn't cause a mess. And I couldn't come up with one. And in the middle of that uh, huge depression came a television show, uh, um, uh, um, uh, Nova documentary, a Nova documentary on pyramid building. And as soon as I saw it, there was an instantaneous thing like, I'm supposed to put my time into ancient Egypt, and I'm supposed to dig into the secrets of the ancient world. And that began in like 1997, I guess that started. Um, it didn't take me long in the research, first of all, to see that the archaeological story of Egypt was obviously completely wrong. It was, it was, it was just junk. And, uh, and I also realized I'm not going to get to know I can't really think about anything that the ancients were doing or thinking if I couldn't think like an ancient, if like somebody in the ancient world. I couldn't think modern. So that sent me, even though I wasn't thinking spiritually in, in any way, uh, it sent me on a quest of meeting um, a Korean Zen monk, several Native Indian medicine men, um, uh, Taoist Qigong doctors from China. And I just kept putting uh, 10 years together with this, going to Mexico, going to Egypt, going all over the world to, to write the first book. Then around 2005, um, when I thought I knew something, I thought I was pretty smart at this point. I thought I was fairly advanced, and I fell into a canyon and had a death experience. And in the death experience, uh, actually, you know, in a sense, tasted the, the nothingness, the empty, the, the everything and the nothingness at the same time, right? And it just threw all of this work. Here I'd spent 10 years of my life, and I, I come out of this experience now feeling like I'm, I'm at step one now, actually, because I have to throw out a lot of that stuff. So I worked through a lot of that experience for about 10 years. And just as the book Falling for Truth, which was written about it and, and the challenges around it, just before that came out, I was in Florence um, looking into cathedrals. I wanted to look into how cathedrals were built and, and what they might have been as energy structures. And somehow I bumped into something on the internet on the Chicago 1893 World's Exposition, and it just instantly blew my mind because I look like I'm looking at ancient Rome, and then I find out 
they built the thing in, in record time of two years, and then as soon as it was done, destroyed it. And I thought, that's insane. And as I started looking into it again, it's like this happened again and again. Every the World Fair is happening all over the world. Build them up in record time and then blow them up with dynamite as soon as they're finished. And I knew I, I've got to put eight or nine months into this because – um, there's been some, there'd been some good YouTube channels that have talked about it. You know, John Levy had a, a, a thing on it. Um, uh, Martin had had one on all these people that had a, a video, but no one had, I felt this, this subject needed a second layer of depth. So I took nine months and wrote the book and that's where we are now. That's so interesting that, uh, I guess I, I guess I completely understand having these tragedies happen and then wanting to dig in because of it. Right. Like that's that's part of my story with we talk about dead people is the only reason I really wanted to investigate history was I kept seeing people fall for things and I couldn't imagine how they could fall for them. Mm. And it occurred to me that there were certain people who didn't have a breadth of experience that would allow them to see history in a way that actually wasn't just a story. Right. Um and early on in the show, we kept running into, ge- uh, not guests, but because uh, you're a first guest, but we kept running into characters where I was like, you know, I would tell the story and people would be like, oh, that's cool. And I sort of wouldn't be able to connect with them because they couldn't take any higher meaning out of it. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Right. So it's interesting. It's very interesting to me to hear, uh, to hear that this sort of came from, from tragedy. Yeah, because it, as long as you think the world is as one, it's wonderful and everything is perfect and and it is the way you've been told when you were five years old, then no matter what gets presented to you, you automatically believe it. But once you've had things in your life that start to that, that bash you over the side of the head, one way or another, that starts to you start to look into everything then and start to wonder, well, you know, because that's what happened after Joan was murdered. After Joan was murdered, because uh, at that point. For example, I, um, I I had been thinking about writing some historical stuff even at that point when I got out of university. I was I was I came out as a hockey historian actually, and I was getting ready to, to write my first hockey historical book. But then she got murdered, and and she had lived she was living a perfect life. I mean, she was she was young, she was healthy, she was smart, she was like one of the smartest people in in the entire country. Uh, she was she did she was doing everything right, and now she's dead. And I I had to sort of step back and say, okay, wait a minute. Um, then the story of how to live life must be wrong because she did, she was living life exactly the way the book tells you to, and she's not here anymore. So, okay, mm-hmm. I need, I need to reexamine the book. And that's kind of, that's really how it all began was this, it was an inner search of saying, what was it I was told how life was supposed to be? And, uh, and, and in a sense that's comedy, right? I mean, yeah. any comedian, any comedian is has got a touch of tragedy to everything that they do because it's through that tragedy or even great great uh, musicians, be it you know you think of Johnny Cash or Ray Charles or whatever. they've got that tragedy in their background and that tragedy comes forth in their in their in the art or in the in the expression, in the creativity, which is a way of um, transforming the, the tragedy, transforming the sadness, and at the same time sharing it. So it's all it's all linked, right? It's all linked somehow. And if you don't have it in your background, it's very hard, I think, to not see whatever you're told to believe. That's extremely, <laughs> that's extremely real to me. Uh, because, you know, again, like I said, this whole thing, this whole podcast sort of came from a sense of I want to figure this out. And I know there's something more to it. And what's being printed in these 
books that I'm reading, I've just been accepting. And I, I, I do want to pull, pull us toward the World's Fair because this was one of those things early on where I was looking at it and there were, you know, all these threads online about like, oh, look, they, they built these up and then they tore them down. And like, you can get hung up on the window dressing of all of that. But there's this level of meaning that's slightly deeper to the story of the World's Fair. Um, and I've really enjoyed listening to you, you know, not only break down the photographs and things like that, such as on uh, Interverse. I listened to that one recently. Um, but the photo, the photographs and, and the story there and the critique we can have for those events, it's sort of like you start to wonder, where else could I be doing this? But, uh, right? Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so not to get not to get crazy deep. I know George gets very uncomfortable. <laughs> We get too deep too quick. I'm just I'm just over here hoping and praying we don't get into the numbers again. That was oh, a weird no. phase. I had a phase with numbers, Howdy. That was that was interesting. But it, uh, start, it started to infect ever. We couldn't talk about we couldn't even talk about what we had for lunch on the podcast without the numbers happening. So I'm just praying we we keep it a little a little bit beyond that level. <laughs> hey, the numbers are are a whole thing. Well, but that's that's not the subject of this show. Speaking of which, Aaron, I was I was surprised when I was really I was I was I was waiting for the lead up to the joke when you were talking about the how you could relate to the personal tragedy thing. I thought you were going to say it was when you met me that the <laughs> tragedy that led you into podcasting, but and you didn't do it. And I was disappointed. We didn't have Howdy on here to talk about our story, George. <laughs> we might get there. We might. We might get. We're gonna have a full spectrum spiritual awakening on. We talk about dead people today. Um, see, this is interesting to me. So I, I would like to drill down a little bit into the World's Fair. I did a little bit of uh, research early on in the show, and every time, every now and then, we would come across it um, in various events. And we just recently covered uh, August Picard. I don't know if you've heard of him before. Yep. 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 Um, and as I was reading that story, it seemed like. I don't know. Did you happen to listen to the episode, any part of it? Uh, I listened to other ones, actually. Okay. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, So not that when we were <laughs> When we were covering this, I got this sense about scientific history in particular, where it seemed like it got almost hijacked at a certain point, and it all seemed to come around the World's Fair. And we covered Tesla and Edison at different times on the show. And these were, you know, these these are the sort of like very surface level characters that you see surrounding the fair. And a lot of people do focus on things like uh, power and energy and, you know, the electrical revolution that was happening during the World's Fair. Um, but I, as far as I understand it, you have a different theory about what might have been going on there with uh, energy generation, that sort of thing. Okay, yeah, I guess for, for, for we should... Step back so that people know what we're talking about here. If, if people don't have a lot of understanding of what a World's Fair, a World Exposition was, we should first let them know what that what that is, right? So uh, these things were were massive. Uh, you might as well call them creations like Disneyland that were supposedly built starting in 1851 with the first one uh, in um, in London at the Crystal Palace, um, and continued in these Crystal Palaces for about 20 years all over the world. Uh, which all of them, of course, burned down magically. And then they started building these Disneyland-like cities that started in uh, Paris and then Philadelphia, and then it expanded yeah, through Chicago, St. Louis, San Francisco, Prague, uh, the Philippines. It doesn't matter, all over the world. And what was so strange about the fairs was two things. Is one is the 
the fact that anywhere from 700 acres to 1,000 acres of buildings were said to be built in two years at a time when the technology just does not in any way suggest that that could be done, and we can talk about that down the road. The fact that then these these things, they had these events which lasted about six months and pretty much all lost money, lost massive amounts of money. None of them turned a profit in any way, shape, or form, and then they were burned down. And in the middle of it, in the, the, the main things that these particular fairs between 1851 and 1915 that I sort of focused on was um, – one was technology, so there was a they they, they were having a massive pretension, a massive presentation of sort of what you might call new technology. There was also a massive presentation of history that there were there huge parts of the fairs were set up as historical centers, but then you've also got areas that you can call human zoos where they brought in the primitives from all over the world uh, to showcase the almost like you might say the animal nature of the rest of humanity, save the you know of course the Victorian. The Victorian, who was the fair goer at the time, and then at the at the same time, you add these these very strange elements of, uh, I guess you could only call like, you know, general indoctrination is so all of this is going on at the same time, all packaged as these world fairs, uh, similar thing all over the world. So that's first what we're talking about. So to answer your question, finally. Why I think the fairs are important, because some people just focus on, oh, they have these buildings, and oh, they came up really quick. Where did the buildings come from? Where did they go? But on a deeper level, it, it's once I got maybe three or four months into my research, it began to almost see like our modern world, the thing we're in right now and the mess we're in right now, has its origin at the time of these fairs. And that the world's fairs in this period of the, of the late 1800s, which is one of the now a period I had never studied really historically. It's one of the strangest historical periods uh, out there, and it literally could be the foundation of everything. And, and there's there's this talk about these uh, resets, right? That we're in a we're in a reset now. That's the word that uh, that's the word they use. The people running this this place right now, and I'm wondering if the world's fairs were the starting point of the last reset. That mm. whatever mm. happened before these fairs was kind of like. We have no idea, and our, real, our the only history we can even start possibly maybe digging into and find any reality to starts with the fairs because it's so weird. Every every fair is showcasing history on a massive scale. The the um, I'll stop here so you can take some questions, but that that that's where it started to lead me, particularly historically. That almost like the historical narrative we know now was invented and presented at the fairs. Hmm. So sort of like a distilled narrative pill for people to swallow. Yeah, like today, if you wanna if you wanna present something, well, you just you, you make sure you have all the news covered, you have all the documentaries covered, you have television covered, and if you just present the story over and over again, that's what people will believe. But back then, they didn't have any of those things. What's the best way to do it? Something like a traveling a traveling uh, outdoor presentation that everybody who's going to go to, because. Uh, the the people who go to these fairs they were expensive you 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 couldn't the, the poor people were not going to these fairs so that means all the school teachers are going all the university professors are going all mm. the anybody who's in in a in a any kind of position of authority is probably at these fairs so it comes very easy when the teacher goes to teach their class the week after and say oh i'm going to tell you about ancient rome now because the world's fair taught me and of course the kids would have also the, the, the newspaper would just be world's fair world's fair world's fair well my teacher was at the world's fair so this must be correct and all of a sudden it doesn't take long to get a historical uh, the historical narrative you want in people's minds generated 
just like that. Now, I, I have to say, this is where <laughs> George and I are like the perfect guys to cover this because I'm my background's in communications and it's also in uh, uh, movies and that sort of thing. So I know what those things do to people's minds. But of course, George is more academic. He's very much into you know the historical narrative as such. And mm. he's a normie. I'm just kidding. He's not. Um, <laughs> he's not laughing either. Um, no, yeah, no. I've, I've heard it all. This is interesting to me because <clears throat> this is a... Uh, this is sort of, well, I would like to point out that you said they lost money. Yeah. Massive amounts yeah. of money. That's a, that's a big deal because one of the things that I noticed uh, pretty recently, I, well, relatively recently studying movies is that almost all of them lose money. And that sort of made me think to myself, well, you know, I had my typical excuse like, well, they just need one big blockbuster and that'll make it all back. And then you start doing some numbers and you're like, well, I guess maybe toys that they could have sold for franchise and that sort of thing would make all the money back that they spent on this. And then the numbers still don't add up. And you're like, how are these people making money? And that's when you realize it's not about the money. It's about the message. Uh-huh. So what you're proposing to me does sound like something like a cultural programming yeah, situation. Just keep talking. I've just got to get my book so I can read you the quote that's in there. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah, no, I've actually, I've got sort of two things to say. The first one is that um, relating to Aaron's point about the money, I saw a headline yesterday about how Amazon's new take on the Lord of the Rings, which is a sentence I wish and pray that I'd never had to utter, but I do. Here it is, is apparently going to be the most expensive production in the history of mankind. The first season alone is going to have a budget of $460 million. Yeah. Why would they spend? You wonder how, how is Amazon since they're making it and then they're going to market it, you know, through prime, I assume. And stuff. how are they going to make back $460 million on a TV series? It's not about the money. Uh, It's not about the money. And then the other thing I wanted to say is that we should probably, um, I mean, so far we've we've kept this fairly tame. I kind of it's you know it's it's early. I'm a little bit tired. I want to hear a big claim. I kind of want to get out there, hear something that's outside the mainstream, and then we can kind of rein it in and maybe work up to why we're saying that and discuss it. But uh, howdy, I want to I want to hear a bold claim. I want to hear something that's not on Wikipedia, not in the history books, and then let's work up to how we got there. Well, I want to hear his quote first because he does have a book. <laughs> oh yeah, okay. Well, I'll read the quote and then we'll then then we'll see where we can go from there. So this happens to be a quote from the uh, 1876 um, exposition in Philadelphia. So the fair was a failure financially, as most of the previous World's Fairs, with the exception of London. The total cost for Philadelphia was $8 million, and the receipts were $4.3 million. However, it was written in the book about the fair that the money loss, it is not, however, on the basis of dollars and cents that the success of such an effort can be estimated. <sighs> Boom. So, so right now you have to remember, the, some of the richest people in, in the United States are financing this fair. Rich people get rich and stay rich because they don't lose money. And, and we're talking like mega rich. Yeah, like mega rich. Just- and you're talking $4 million in 1876. That's what it lost. I don't know what that would be today, but you know that's a pretty staggering number. And then they decide, yeah, great idea. Let's do it again. Everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> For years. For years. <laughs> right. Yeah. So same thing with the movies, with everything else. Something is just not, something is just not right. 
There, so that's fascinating. And just when you said that, your screen flashed. Even I know. So. I'm getting. Uh, you can't see it. I guess we're doing a radio thing. But my, I get these screen flashes. I don't know if it's from the camera, if it's from the computer, if it's in my house, if some like, if some poltergeist is lighting up my house. It's. <laughs> it's. I wish you could see this right now because it's bizarre. Oh, I just saw it. Actually, it's it's the ghost of J.P. Morgan yeah. coming in to mess up our. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So okay, okay. I'm I'm so, I'm good with doing bold claims, um, but I don't want to alienate anybody with it. But uh, well, you've you've been you you, you've been looking at this stuff before. What would be you've you've heard me talk? So what would be if you you know what what do you think that he would think would be a bold claim? And we can start with that. What because you know him better than I know. So I I, I I don't know what might be a bold claim or not to him. But but you've heard me talk before. What do you think might be a bold claim that would be a starting point? Well, here's one thing that I definitely. Definitely uh, believe there's something to, but can't really prove, and that's the uh, the nature of the uh, energy in these in the buildings. Um, that one always scares people. They don't like hearing about things like that because it's it. Um, like when you said you walked into, a, I think it was a cathedral. Um, was it in Italy? I think I was talking about in. I was talking probably in the in what you were listening to was in Nantes, Nantes, France. Okay. Right. And you said you walked in and you felt something, but then you said something later about going to Stonehenge and that it was dead. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm not sure how to talk about that because, you know, we come at these things from a practical perspective. And definitely, you know, at least in my life, once I started noticing it, I couldn't stop noticing it. Mm. Right. When I go into certain buildings, I'm like, oh, these are these are boxes and there's no life here. Mm. Right. But when you start saying things like that, people get a little bit skittish. So I don't even know if it's a bold claim so much as the language is is confused around it. You know what I'm saying? Okay, let's start. Is that bold enough or should we go should we look for something else? <laughs> I mean, I I never want to, you know, deny metaphysical realities and sort of levels of being beyond what one can see, even even with inanimate inanimate objects such as buildings and stuff. So no, I'd like I'd like to get something one sentence, one really pithy sentence, like you know, Julius Caesar landed on the moon. Not 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 quite that you know that type of thing, but something something that's one sentence that we can kind of come back to that like the World's Fair was X or the world okay. the World's Fair may have been had buildings that were thousands of years old. Nice. There, we, there go. we go. There we go. That's the type That's of sentence stuff. I'm looking for. All right. Now, I, I love that claim because I have heard that. I have heard you talk about that before, and I actually admire the case you've made for it. So um, for those of you who are not familiar with this, Howdy, why don't you explain to us how you arrived at that conclusion? Because it had to be a long road. It was a, it was a, well, actually not as long as you might think at the beginning, but what happened was, uh, of course, I would recommend now if 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 you should jump on the internet. Well, obviously, you're on the internet now. If you're hearing us, of course, <laughs> open up open another browser window and and pull okay. up some pictures of something like the Chicago World's Fair of 1893 or the St. Louis Fair of 1904 or you know even Buffalo 1901. Some of the real big ones that had happened uh, during this time frame and and take a look at some of the buildings that were going because it, my words aren't going to mean as much if you can't see what we're talking about. Now the buildings are massive to start with. They're they're absolutely, and it's not like there's one of them. They've they built uh, for the Chicago World's Fair. I think they built first built four. There's 14 giant structures. One of them, the manufacturer's building, could hold 300,000 people. So 300,000 people could fit in the manufacturer's building alone, and you've got maybe 
four to 500 buildings of, because every state had a building in the US. Uh, most countries in the world had a building. There was an entire midway that had been built of like unbelievably excessive uh, events that were uh, uh, would rival the size of Disneyland. And then you've got these giant, plus the lakes, plus the canals. They had an elect, an above ground electric train. They had an, uh, a moving electric walkway. They had boats that would move through the entire through the entire exposition. This is Chicago, right? This this, and you have to see the size and the scale of it, and the ornamentation, the domes, the towers, the the finish. The it's it's an unbelievable construction project to start with. That's uh, that's fascinating. Yeah, the first time Audi, I walked into that room, he threw a, a shell at me, and I didn't know what it was, and I caught it. I'm like, is this live? <laughs> and, and I goes, said, well, there's a there's a ninety percent chance it's inert at this point. <laughs> at this point, right. uh, Okay. Right. <laughs> this week, I got a coffee cup that doesn't say "World's Greatest Grandma" on it, which I don't know if you noticed, but that's what I was drinking from last time we did this was "World's Greatest Grandma." <laughs> I wasn't paying that much attention. I was. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So George, just to update you, Howdy and I were talking, we're, we're going to try to move a little more quickly through some subjects to get to a couple more uh, urgent topics such as education and whatnot. Um, how does that sound to you since you've just taken, good. taken your first educational position somewhere? <laughs> Technically not my first. All right. It's not your first. But I mean, it's... I have been, I have been teaching for like five years. <laughs> That's true. But you have been a mechanic for like what, two now. So true. Yeah. All right. So I don't know how we're going to run this in, but um, we're recording well, right just now. Be honest. Just, yeah. you know, we just say where, what happened. All right. Well, um, first of all, George, do you have your audacity going? I do. Okay, sweet. All right. Well, everybody, <laughs> as is uh, as is our want with We Talk About Dead People, we had some technical difficulties and we are going to be re-recording the second half of this interview. Uh, we're really pleased to have Howdy back <laughs> to sort of blow through some topics. I will say we won't have the spontaneity and maybe some of the surprise we had on certain subjects. So I'm going to pretend to be stunned again <laughs> um, about uh, things, specifically where where Howdy found all this information on the World's Fair to begin with, um, which I want to make sure we get in, even though I'm pretty sure we recorded it the first time, but that source was pretty intense. But I think that was pretty late in the show, in our discussion. So why don't we start there for people to who might want to look into, into the fairs? Sure. Okay. So the site that I bumped into after researching for quite a while was a place called studylove.org. And if you just go to his web, his first page, there's nothing on it that says World Fairs. It's a whole lot of um, religious and spiritual sort of headings. But what is it? It's like studylove.org slash fairs or something, right? Well, it was World's World Fairs. Fairs, yeah. World's Fairs, yeah. And when you go there, there'll be a list of years. And he has information on all the World's Fairs that is available on the internet. And you will be amazed how much original sources are available. So if somebody were to click in, say, to the 1893 World's Fair, you would find that right after the, all the fairs, there were picture books. There were historical 5,000, 6,000 page historical documents done, not just on the fairs, but 
on the entire exhibits itself in complete detail with photographs of everything. Then there's the guidebooks. So before the fair came out, there were four or five guidebooks, the equivalent of Lonely Planets to Paris, that were made for all these fairs. So the amount of material that if you want to dig in on fair after fair after fair is just sitting there. And it's, it's, it was stunning when I came across it. Well, I will say, <laughs> since, we, since we've already done this, um, in the time since we recorded, I did actually go and check out some of those guidebooks. And I'm just uh, completely blown away by how much information there is. In fact, I was showing my brother. Um, I was like, look at this this one's 15,000 pages long or something like that. <laughs> and yeah. we were digging through it and the detail in it is absolutely, I mean, I don't know if I'd call it obscene, but it's, it's like, it's maybe the most detailed guide of how to do anything I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, it's and, extensive. And some, of the, and some of the guidebooks are really interesting because there'll be, there'll be pieces in the, in the beginning of some of them from doctors that are warning people like, yeah, if you've got a bad heart or if you're a little bit weak, you shouldn't really walk around the whole fair because that's going to be too difficult for you. You should only you should uh, limit your trip to a section of the fair and literally like like doctor's orders of also how to see the fair because it it would literally it, it could literally knock you out if you tried to see it all in one day. Like it's just that big. I'm hearing some noise. Is that is that you, George? Uh, no, my microphone was muted. So okay. Sounds like some kind of machine. Hel yeah, machine or helicopter, but I hear nothing where I am. He's being patrolled by black helicopters. We're already in trouble. Um, uh, see, that that has ha that has happened actually. Wait, legitimately? Legitimately. I wow, I shouldn't be joking about that then. Uh, in that case, yeah. I'm going to mute you, George. Um, <laughs> I don't know if it's your air conditioner or whatnot, but See that does remind me of the the uh, health questionnaires, or I'm sorry, the uh, the health warnings I get at the beginning of a video game where it says, "Don't play this if you have epilepsy." Mm. Um, <laughs> it uh, it sounds it sounds rather familiar, but they do put those warnings on certain rides at Disney World, um, and of course, but, I, th I think we did talk the, about this, that. but this is you know for the whole fair, yeah. and again, like you see, you're seeing the guidebook, so you're seeing the extent of what's there. Like I, I did one. We'll talk later again about what was at the St. Louis Fair historically, because we're doing historical stuff. But I remembered looking into one building, just one building at the Chicago World's Fair, and it was not even a regular building. It was a state building. I looked into the state of Illinois. What did the state of Illinois have for the World's Fair? It was like 80 pages of information describing all the paintings, all the statues, all the artwork, all the, you know, whatever pianos and musical instruments and and machines and what it was 80 pages for one building it was it was like how, how could you ever possibly take it all in so my question so you <laughs> specifically illinois that's very interesting because i'm in illinois right now and someday i should go check this place out but <laughs> george is very uncomfortable with uh with me being in illinois <laughs> Um, terrible place it is a terrible place there's there's not much here except for um well I, here's what i say to here's what i say to people who uh who visit i'm like there's two types of people in illinois uh flat earthers and liars <laughs> because you come here and it's like it might as well be minecraft it's so um freaking flat but now uh Annette, i would just like to ask the question that we lost you on the last yep. time we recorded this. So one of the things that I hear you talking about on a lot of your interviews 
is uh, energy and buildings. And um, one of the things that I will say is that it seems like a lot of people get very nervous about words like energy, especially walking into buildings. And you had an analogy last time we recorded. I'm sure you remember it. It was uh, it was about different restaurants. Um, and in other interviews, I've heard you talk about sites that you visited. And we, we already talked about um, the one you went to. I think it was uh, Nantes, was it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, where you went in and you felt like there was a sort of an energy well there or something like that? Yeah, uh, a few different, like the easiest one to describe the, the feel, because that, that's what I talk about. Like, for example, when you're going to the ancient world, if you're going to go look and study, whether it be ancient Egypt or the ancient Maya or Peruvians or whatever, you not just have to see the site. You not just have to see the stonework, see how things have been put together, see the reliefs, see the statues. You have to feel them. Um, that's as much of an important element of understanding as anything else, um, because the, ener- the energy is so different. It's so much stronger. And this took me into uh, when I went to Stonehenge. So when I went to Stonehenge in 2010, um, I was really looking forward to it. I mean, this is one of the places I'd had on my, my list over the 10 years I needed to go study. And, and we got to Stonehenge, I went with a friend of mine, and, and it was just dead. Like the site, was there was, there was just zero energy, nothing. And I thought, okay, that they, it's because you're, you, we first went uh, during the day where you're not allowed to go touch the stones. Now you have to, you're, you're, you're roped off. I thought, well, we'll see it. I'll feel it tonight when I have the special permission and I go in and I can actually touch the stones. And when I went in and was in the middle of the circle, it was still almost nothing. And I thought something's really wrong. And of course I thought it must be wrong with me because I must be the problem, not Stonehenge. But the next day we went to Avebury, uh, 30 minutes away and Avebury was so strong, I felt like my legs were on fire. The electricity going through my body was so strong, I actually couldn't stand still anywhere at Avebury, which is, if anyone doesn't know, is an unbelievably spectacular site. It's not just a massive stone circle that sort of circum- circumnavigates the whole town now of Avebury, but it, it's very similar to the Serpent Mound in Ohio, where uh, a pathway of dual stones leads you into the main circle and then leads you out of the main circle into where the, the serpent would be eating an egg. So from the sky, it would look uh, almost the same as Serpent Mound in, in Ohio, but just done with massive stones. And I walked the whole thing. I walked from the end to to the other end of the thing over the course of the day. And yeah, by the time I was done, almost energetically, I was done. Hmm. And, and yeah, as we got into this conversation, I mean, People feel energy, people feel energy even if they say they don't. And the example I gave was there are certain restaurants that people tend to go to quite often, not really because the food is so good, but because they like the atmosphere. Uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, people go watch, sometimes go we'll watch a sporting event live, not because they really like the game any better than what they'd see on TV, but it's the feeling of being there. There's an atmospheric energy and uh, there, there's just something in the place that's different. And so certain places automatically have, a, have an energy that draw you and certain ener- have an energy that don't. And just these ancient sites, it's bigger and stronger. And that was certainly would have been the case at these World Fair buildings. Right. So um, I actually started paying attention <laughs> when I started going into buildings this week. Uh, yeah, George doesn't like that. And you see him shaking his head. Um, started paying attention. Uh, I just, uh, just doubt it. Just doubt it. You, you doubt I started paying attention. How dare you? No, um, I doubt you went into any interesting buildings this week. Uh, mm, live in Illinois. Let me finish my sentence. I actually drove to Wisconsin <laughs> um, 
every time I go into Milwaukee, I get this different vibe. There's something sort of like weird going on there. And I don't know. I, I don't know if we <laughs> want to get into this, but cities give me weird vibes now. And it's not because I'm paranoid. There's just something about it. When you go in, there's just this, I don't know. Uh, I guess I'd describe it as almost like a, like a low hum, like a, like a weird darkness. I don't know how to put it, but I started noticing yes. it months ago. And uh, I really noticed it this week when I went up there um, for a visit. Okay. But I was curious, um, did the World's Fair buildings, like we did talk about this, but um, <laughs> George was trying to get you to make a, a big, beautiful claim. You remember that? I do remember that. Yes. And you had this really pithy statement where you were just like, I think that the buildings at the World's Fair were such and such. And I don't know if we could springboard from there, but uh, unfortunately, we lost that little tidbit. Oh, George got some. Yeah. So before we get into that, I just kind of actually want to hop back to what Howie was just saying about yeah. um, the Stonehenge issue. I wonder if and this is just me completely spitballing. Hmm? I happen to know that Stonehenge, rather than a lot of the other sites in the UK, is the one that is um, really focused on by a lot of the um modern 21st century British neo-pagan movements, of which I have an exceptionally low opinion. I wonder if there's some connection there that these uh, these movements, which in my mind are really little more than a psyop to distract people from actually thinking about the universe, focus on a site which, to your sort of experience, doesn't have that kind of energy going on all around it. Actually, that's a good question, and that will take me into to two two answers. A piece that I didn't explain about Stonehenge, and and first of all, I would agree with you exactly what you said there. First of all, about a lot of these groups, yeah, that's what they're there to do. They're there, they're there, even though they, I think they think uh, that they're doing something positive. Like they, they actually probably have a really good intention, but because they're not, like I say, no one's having to think about anything because of it. Nobody bothers them. They can just go ahead and kind of do what they want. But when it comes to Stonehenge, I think the, the issue there, which I didn't talk about, was about seven or eight years, or not, maybe not that long, maybe two years after I'd been to Stonehenge, I bumped into some research on the internet done by a Russian, a Russian researcher. And I mentioned Russian, Russians used to do some fantastic historical research, uh, which we just, we didn't know about it because we didn't know where to find it. And they put up these photos from the 1950s, about 200 photographs of Stonehenge being dismantled. Literally, they, they took out all the stones from the ground, put them onto trucks, drove them off the site. They dug up all of Stonehenge. You have these pictures of them, of the archaeologists digging with no stones anywhere. Then you see the stone pictures where the stones are being brought back. Now, we don't know if they're the same stones or if they're stones that were made that, you know, look the same. So we don't really know if it's the same stones. And then they were cemented in place. So you have a completely different site after this excavation work was finished and reset up than the site that was before. And certainly cementing stones in place, because I, I talk about these old stone megaliths a lot that you can compare them to acupuncture uh, needles on the body that they're that they're the ancients found the the energy meridians of the earth and they were placing the stones just like uh, an acupuncturist would put uh, would put uh, acupuncture needles in the body to change alter move energy around and once you alter the position and certainly cement them in place well you're not putting in you're, you're not doing it the same way it was originally put in to start with and again, secondly, we don't know what stones went in because I'm sure some of you might remember that picture of when Obama took his trip to Stonehenge and you can see in the background, some of the stones are literally, I mean, it's like stuff is flaked away and it's like metal underneath it. 
it's quite obviously some kind of steel. They tried to explain it away. Well, oh, no, a couple of the stones were damaged and we had to quickly, re you know, repair them to keep them standing and whatever. It's like, hmm, well, maybe there's a reason they don't like people to get very close to the stones. They don't want anybody chopping around a little bit to find out they all might be metal inside and just a stone cover. Hmm. I don't know. What do you think about that, George? You did ask the question. Oh, I, I don't know a whole a great deal about Stonehenge. I'm trying to think when do you remember when these uh the removal and stuff took place because I I know in the 50s there was some work done on them. I actually know that because I read an article about some dude in Florida who had a a small piece uh, it was actually a core from one yep. of the stones cuz he'd been involved in the drilling. Um yeah. is this is this the, that same sort of time period of the 50s? Same time period. I as I know there had been one that had been done around uh, 1920 or 1922. That was the first you might call it slash digging slash restoration slash whatever. But the one we're talking about was 1952-53. So that was when that happened. And um yeah, there's like 250, 300 photographs. So it's not like it, it's not like it's just one or two, you know, it's like hundreds of them. And yeah, it's just, it's amazing to see the stones being hoisted on these cranes and being moved around and, and you've got two or three stones standing and nothing else around them and big trenches being dug and, you know, people digging and it's just, and it's just, okay, there's my answer. Well, there's that's my, my question is like, why would you move something like that? I mean, half the draw is that, oh, look, we just found this thing and it's out there in the open, right? That's a very concerning thing. I mean, I could understand them wanting to remove one stone as a test. Mm. Okay, you know, we're going to move one, like kind of like if you're going to do a core sample in the Great Pyramid, well, you maybe pick one area, one stone, one whatever, and drill into one. You don't drill into 8,000 8, of them. You know, you, don't, you, you, you limit what you're doing to look after the site. So right away, the fact that they moved all of it off-site indicate something really weird is going on and uh for anyone who's been to stonehenge you'll also know that you you at least you did i don't know if things have changed in the last five or six years but you used to park in, in a parking lot on uh on another side of the street the road actually ran between the parking lot and stonehenge now it's a parking lot itself is interesting because there are a couple of post holes that indicated where there used to be these these really interesting long pieces of wood that were marking various parts of the equinoxes and solstice but anyway you then walk underneath the roadway in a tunnel and as you go through this tunnel towards stonehenge there are these there are these like steel doors on the sides of you as you walk by and it's obvious these doors are not there to keep the cleaning equipment you know these doors are heading somewhere and I'm talking to a few people and, and, and there are like these grates that like literally like, like, uh, yeah, like air vents almost that are, that are kind of around the edges of, of where Stonehenge is. And I asked a couple of the guards like, so um, <clears throat> what is this? Oh, I think it's just a drain for water to drain off. But why do you need water to drain off the site? You don't need water to drain off at all. Oh yeah. I, I'm not sure what it is. You're not interested. You're here every day. And you're not, so I, I, I don't doubt that there's a whole underground thing under Stonehenge. So if I would then bring it back to George's question, finally here, so he knows I was paying attention to him. Um, there's a high possibility that there's another group or another series of groups that we don't know about that are doing rituals underneath Stonehenge in what might be chambers or, or underground stuff beneath it. And that also might be causing a major change to the energy of the site, whatever's going on. It's kind of like the Winnip the famous Winnipeg, um, the Winnipeg City Hall, right? The Winnipeg City Hall has 
one of the weirdest buildings in the world. And then underneath it is literally this hidden chamber that nobody talks about. And, and uh, who knows what's going on underneath that in this chamber underneath the building. All right. I can feel it already. We are not going to catch the same thread <laughs> because this is way too interesting. Winnipeg city hall. Uh, you said I actually, there, I, I would just been looking up Milwaukee, by the way, while you were talking. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, Winnipeg City Hall. Yeah, they've got a they've got a secret chamber under Winnipeg City Hall. Yeah. Well, first of all, look at look at this look at the city hall to start with. I mean, not okay. the old one. I mean, you're looking. Is it the city hall or what is the building? It's the. Uh, it's oh the, my gosh! Uh, no, I okay. So I see this modern piece of shit. Pardon my. No, friend. no, it's not that. It's a yeah. Win, Win, Winnipeg City Hall. I think is what what it's called. The old one. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking at it, that. It, yeah, yeah, it should it should have like a like a golden statue on top of it. Yeah, a golden Hermes. Yeah. Yep. Oh my God, a Hermes. Uh, <laughs> what are we gonna do now? Yeah. See, that's uh, that's another thing that I, I did want to talk about was uh, was the um, quality of architecture descending, but we could probably get to that a little later. Um, so I guess I did have one other question that I wanted to ask you. You were saying that it's like acupuncture or something like that with the placement mm. of the stones. There's right. something that I noticed that really freaked me out and I didn't read this anywhere. I was just looking at, uh, at, uh, sky, um, or uh, aerial views of various capital cities around the world. And I started to notice that there appears to be some kind of uh, geomancy going on with, uh, where buildings are placed. Have you ever noticed anything like this, particularly in Paris? Everywhere. 100%. Okay. So what is going on with that? Out of curiosity, if you have a perspective, again, similar thing, right? You're, it's that uh, old hermetic axiom: as above, so below. So, if you want to bring sky and earth together for whatever you want to bring it for, you mirror things on the earth as they are in the sky, or you mirror, you mirror in what you build in in uh, sacred geometry or or cymatics or whatever, right? If you want, if you know, if you blow into the sand a particular note, and the sand will make a particular pattern. Then if you just build in that pattern on the ground, you'll be creating the same uh, musical frequency or the same note, the same energy, right? That, that, it's, it, that's the thinking behind it. Yeah. And as you get higher and higher and look at the road layouts and where buildings are, and, and if you know what you're looking for, it's just so obvious. Right. See, because everyone, you know, you see memes and things online of like, oh, look, you know, Washington, D.C. has got a pentagram built into it. And, you know, that always makes me smile because... Probably there's something to that because, you know, Freemasons. But the other part of that is I started to see it in other capital cities and it always starts at the capital and then there's a, an obelisk not far from it. And then it appears as if there's arms, almost as if they're built. This is going to sound really crazy, but it's almost as if they're building like giants. Does that make any sense? Could be. Uh, like, I mean, you look at the way St. Peter's Square is built in Rome. And so... First of all, you've got that weird, the obelisk turns itself into a strange sundial, but it's all built to be like a giant keyhole. So the whole area from above looks like a keyhole. And of course, you're asking, well, what's the key that go, would, would literally go in to fit that key and turn, turn open the lock at, to, symbolically at St. Peter's Square? So again, sometimes when you, there was a guy that did a whole lot of this, what was his video for those who might be interested? It's called, it's on for free, his first one section is on free on YouTube. Um, uh, secrets in plain sight secrets in plain sight he's got i think it's 20 a 23 chapter documentary he made on cities around the world and their strange alignments and how the alignments fit with other cities around the world and other things and he, he did a you know i don't agree with all of his conclusions of course but of course not 
what he's presenting is outstanding because he found tons of stuff I had I, I had no idea about. It wasn't until I watched him. Like, oh, wow, that's in Rome or wow, that's in London. Or I didn't know about the Jefferson Memorial here and how this relate. Wow. Highly, highly recommended to, if you're interested in these topics um, about the city layouts and, and stuff. He, he was it was outstanding. I'll check it out because I, I mean, like the the whole giant hypothesis kind of struck me because in DC, it's just it's like, oh, there's where a hand would go. That's the Department of Labor. There's where another hand would go. That's the Department of Defense or something like that. And then there's you know, oh, there's where the feet would go. There's bridges there. What's going on here? And I noticed yeah. it. And I'm like, maybe this is going on in other capital cities. And that's when I went to Berlin and I went to Paris and I went to the Vatican. <laughs> and there was some weird stuff going on from above. Okay, well, you can you can get uh, if I send to something like we're on Zoom right now, by the way, I'll, I can send you a um, where's it says where it says send a send you like a message. I know I should chat. Yeah. So if I send you this, you can go to the site I'm looking at right now, just because he brought up going to Milwaukee. So Milwaukee is obviously close to him. So I just want to make sure that you can see what I'm seeing. You've got the site. Yep. Okay, so let's look at the architecture down the side. Well, the first building doesn't tell us much, but look at the second, the Basilica of St. Josephat. That, that's a beautiful tower and dome structures, again, supposedly built in 1929. But we get more as we go down. We go to number, uh, let's go to number six, the Milwaukee City Hall, with, uh -huh. again, this extremely beautiful, uh, would be like a bell tower and real high-quality stone art workmanship. There's the Milwaukee Public Library, built in 1898 in a combination of French and Italian Renaissance style, 33,000 square feet of green on its roof. In 1898, do you really need to build that for a library? Like, oh, really? man. Yeah. Huh. Uh, uh, and then we go down. Well, well the Mitchell building's nice. Uh, here's this thing called the Paps Mansion. The Flemish in Flemish Renaissance revival. Uh, how about uh, as we go down for the Joan of Arc Chapel? Okay, what's interesting? Why you have to have Joan of Arc? Because the whole Joan and story and and John and what that refers to from the New Testament is quite interesting. How about number sixteen, the Tripoli Shrine, an architectural replica of India's Taj Mahal, including stunning mosaics and original art and furniture supposedly 1928, home of Milwaukee Shriners. Um, you know, but there's just a few buildings right there, just down the road from you in Milwaukee that I guarantee would be, would be if you want to go test energy, just go in those buildings and tell me what you tell me what you find. I guarantee you'll feel something. You want to hear something funny is I've been there dozens of times in the last few years. I didn't even know any of these were there. <laughs> I knew about all of the modern ones, including that clock tower at the very top. I knew about all of those, but I've never gone looking for these. They're sort of hidden away, it seems. But well, we've be. given you you and the people and your viewers something to look at. And, and again, for all of you interested in this kind of history, the things we're talking about, the thing of like architecture that uh, comes from the particularly the 1800s that can't be explained. Again, just, just go look at your state capitol building. Go look at your state capitol building and no matter what state you're in, it will be absolutely ornate, spectacular. And then ask yourself, how did they build this? Yeah. In, well, the, in the year they're supposed to build this, how did they actually build this? And it's, it, you'll get similar answers to the World's Fair. We have, If you're honest, you'll have no idea. Well, I think that's actually kind of a nice segue into discussing whether or not the World's Fair pictures um, or well, what they are. Um, because one of the things you reference uh, repeatedly in interviews is that there's there's no like scaffolding, there's no sandwich wrappers, that sort of thing. There's no garbage like left around in these construction photos. And I made the comment that 
to me, they look more like recovery projects than construction sites. Yeah. Before we get to that, I just want to see George, did you, anything you wanted to bring up about what we were just saying or should we move on? Oh, he's muted. Ah, sorry. <laughs> I've just been looking at the pictures of pictures of Milwaukee and um, I don't really know anything about Milwaukee, but to me, a lot of those buildings I saw, especially the churches I'm more, uh, more familiar with, cause that's a little bit closer to my, uh, my area interest. Mm-hmm. Nothing seems weird about them to me. They look very much in line with the uh, sort of architectural principles at the time, the architectural development throughout America. And like even with the library, yeah, it's very monumental. But that's a time when uh, you have an immense amount of benefaction of ri- basically rich people feeling a huge social pressure to build nice buildings as sort of a justification for why they're rich. Um my, my favorite Roman historian actually speaking about the same thing in the Roman era said that the uh, public beneficence is the ransom the rich pay for their lives. And so you have a huge pressure um, to, to build nice things when you're rich. Weirdly, not anymore. Now that people are richer than ever. But why, I, don't, I don't really see anything weird about these buildings that tells me there has to be something more to them than simply being products of their time and place. See again that see that the, to me that would be uh, automatically accepting the historical narrative as being true, as opposed to examining the buildings and really starting to dig into exactly how how did this get built. Um, if we go back a little bit further and you take some of these state capitol buildings, and there's some great examples in the West because they're they're fantastic, whether it be Iowa or North Dakota or whatever, and you'll see the construction photos of those buildings, and there's no road. So that's the first that's the first amazing thing they are building supposedly these massive stone dome like structures but they don't take a couple of weeks first to build a road to bring your supplies in. and remember this is all supposed to come with horse and buggies so you're just going to have a horse and buggy carrying massive amounts of of marble and and uh, glass and uh, you know over over dirt and mud when literally you should have like 5,000 guys working there. If 2,000 guys working there, they can build a road. You know, that shouldn't right. be a problem to, to, to supply trainer, but there's no roads. It's interesting and that so, I, do, I do find it hard to imagine building these things with that kind of technology. And yet we're told such things as like, oh, well, that's how the Colosseum was built. That's how Rome was built with horses and buggies and all the rest. Um, and right. So, it- if we, so, we, so we take your question of where you went talking about the fairs. If we go to the World Fair construction photos, and you can find them for any any of the sites. Um, uh, that site, Study Love, is a great place to go look look into the World Fair books. They'll they'll have supposed construction photos, but St. Louis is the best. Go look for photos of the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair, and there will be 500 photographs of the supposed, supposed construction, and it'll always almost always look the same. It will be a completed building in the background. There will be scaffolding on the building, and the building is done. Maybe a little bit on the roof is 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 not completely done yet, but everything's done. The ornamentation, the everything. But when you look in the foreground, there's no pile of materials. There's there's no bathrooms because you'd be talking something that uh, the Chicago or the St. Louis Fair was over a thousand acres, and they again supposedly built all that in two years, and you would need thirty or forty thousand workmen. Where's 30 or 30, 30, 40,000? We're going to the bathroom. Like you're going to need like a thousand bathrooms potentially of some kind. And, and uh, where are they? Where are they on site? And you've got these long, these photos, some of the photos are not close. They're quite far back. You see quite a large a- area of, of the supposed construction of the fair. 
and there's there's no yeah there's no bathrooms there's no there's no signs there's been work done there's no signs there's there's piles of material there's no coffee cups there's no there's nothing it's just an empty it's like mud pit and the building and the scaffolding and um and i know george mentioned in the last uh, uh, when we did the last interview that you didn't hear uh he had mentioned well you know taking a photo of something like this would have been a very uh, special thing to do so they would have cleaned up the site you know and, and talked about um sometimes you would do that on an archaeological dig you want to make the photo look good but again trying to clean up the, the presence of forty thousand workmen and and all remember and all the horses how many horses would they have to have going around to to carry and, and bring in all the materials and again there's no roads at the st louis world's fair so the horses are dre so the cart marks where and and where would the where would the hitching posts be? This is another great one. When you look at the construction mm. photos of the World's Fair, there's no hitching posts anywhere to hitch up your horses, um, who are supposedly bringing in all the materials. So again, when I showed these to my building contractor who sees building sites all over the world, he was very clear: nothing's been done here for like a year. They, 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 these guys just put some scaffolding up and took a picture, because because this is a building site. There's a whole bunch of other things that need to be here that aren't, and and it just the cleanup would have been too would have been too great given that they're to clean up the presence of forty thousand workmen for a couple of photographs. Given you've only got a very short limited time apparently to build the fair and get it ready because it was not only the fair it was the Olympics. St. Louis also had the Olympics in 1904. So you, you know never mind just building that. You got to build the the whole Olympics at the same time, right? They're starting from scratch and they're also building the Olympics. All the all the all the held venues for the uh, Summer Olympics uh, in two years. It's it's once you once you really step back and say I'm willing to think about history. I'm willing to say that the possibility of history may not be true. You know, not saying it's false, but I'm going to say okay. I'm just going to re-examine it again and sort of re-step in with fresh logic. That just fresh logic doesn't doesn't survive what you're seeing. It's uh, it's so bizarre well it's sort of like when when you approach a, a question or a um you know something like this if you accept sort of like the historical thing you're sort of like explain it to me um versus um explain yourself right <laughs> like yeah. it's 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 hard to say exactly um but i don't know i, I i've kind of lost my thread here Oh, but I mean, this is this is what you guys are doing, right? That's part of what you're doing. I mean, you're you're trying to look at history in, in a different way. You're trying to not present the same story over and over again. Trying to find some a little bit of humor and some a way of having sort of something odd that you can bring out. And and yeah, the more you look at history, the odder it gets, right? Well, you know, this is actually a great thread. Um, I actually had a friend text me. I haven't talked to him in years. Um, he texted me just the other day, and he wanted to thank me because we covered uh, the Hatfields and the McCoys mm -hmm. recently. And I picked that story because I heard the meme version where it was like, oh, look, these two stupid redneck families got in a big fight over a pig and they killed each other. Isn't that hilarious? And I was like, oh, that should be good content for the show, right? That's just obviously stupid. Well, I started digging into it and it turns out that what they don't talk about is like, well, there was literally like one of the largest land disputes in the history of that state at the bottom of all of that. And it had nothing to do with the Hatfields and the McCoys. They were just sort of the window dressing of the story and the actual history was sort of lost. So what, what we essentially got, and you'll love this is um, the Hatfields and the McCoys franchise turned into 
essentially a theme park. Uh, what, what was it, George? We it was create stories worth remembering. That was the that was the logo, or the the slogan. Yeah, it was it was it was something. It, it was, was something very 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 questionable like that. I don't remember the exact wording. Right. So you look into the stories of these like these mountain men and these incredible stories of like you know living off the land and surviving in this you know terrible time and whatnot. And then you see what the Hatfields and McCoys are doing today, the alleged Hatfields and McCoys, what they're doing today. They're putting on like a redneck stage show. It's absurd. And it's part of like the whole Dolly World phenomenon out in uh, southern Indiana. It's ridiculous. Um, but I remember looking at that and feeling like there's so much more to this story. And yet it's been whittled down into like, oh, look, a bunch of rednecks fought each other over a pig. And that's it. And that's, I don't know, it, it really pissed me off. But I had, a, I had a friend text me about that. And he said, thank you for portraying the South properly. Like, we're not just a bunch of idiots down here. Um, I don't know. That is, that, that'll take us to a good segue. But I want to see if George has something to say first, because the, actually what you commented takes us right into the fairs. But George? No, no, I'm... I'm 100% on board with what, what Aaron was saying. In fact, it's it's funny. See, Aaron didn't make it clear to me what his intentions were. So I was actually getting kind of pissed off at yep. him because he really did that episode sort of playing into the stereotypes for a while. And as as somebody who uh, you know comes from what they call the other side of the river, I was starting to get a little bit pissed off at Aaron because of how much he was playing into that. So, no, I'm, I'm 100% on board with what he was just saying. Because that's a lot of what these fairs were about. So we can talk about the buildings, you know, continually, of course, where they built, were they an ancient civilization, whether some other technology, is the story really true? But then there's what the fairs were doing. Exactly. And a lot of what you just said, which was uh, how they've kind of created this theme park or this redneck sort of stage show to portray the myth that they want. Um a really good example of this is, is two fairs. One would be the World's Fair in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, now, a lot of the fairs, a big part of them were designed to do two things. One was to, uh, I think, create the historical narrative that the rest of the world was going to believe from this point on forward. This is why the fairs are so important. I think it's literally the, the dividing point. We talk about we're talking about going through a reset now. I think the fairs are at, we're at the reset point of the last big one we went through, whenever that really happened. And the, the, the World's Fairs starting in the 1860s and 70s began the new presentation of what people were to believe. Uh, for example, originally in Omaha, they wanted to have, they, they brought an entire, all of the um, Indian tribes, they brought them together. Now, uh, at, at later on, they, they, you had zoos. You actually had human zoos at these fairs where they would present, they would literally bring Aboriginals and South African Zulus and Apaches and whatever and present them in, in ways to show that they were savages compared to the, the uh, white elite goer who was you know, coming to the fair and, and that you could go to exhibits and have your head examined and make sure your head wasn't the same uh, size as a pygmy or the same size as a Zulu to show that you were evolved. But in Omaha, uh, because that's, that's in the West, that's, that was still Western world out there, they wanted to hold an actual Congress where the Indian tribes and the Indian chiefs could all get together and have discussion about their religious beliefs and their feelings about the world and the earth and where things were going. This was the original idea. They brought all the, all the tribes together, but the promoters soon were influenced by a group called the Improved Order of the Red Men. 
uh, who called to have the Congresses stopped and instead show off battles between whites and Indians where the whites would always win. It underscored the message that, that the natives were a race on their way to extinction and needed to submit to white rule. A 5,000 seat grandstand was quickly erected to have these fake battles. The other thing that they did at this was they, they forced the Indians, uh, particularly the, the Lakota, to start reenacting the ghost dance. Now, if those of you know the, the, the story there, the ghost dance was the very thing that Sitting Bull began in like the late 1880s with the idea that by this particular dance would give them a uh, like a shield from the white bullets and they would be able to using this this magical power be able to get their continent back and then of course there was a great massacre in 1890 at Wounded Knee where uh, the soldiers just just killed off a, an entire uh, village of of ghost dancers but so this is this fair is just a few years after this is like 1887 1897 1898 and they forced the in who had and of course that dance was of course um uh censored and, and it was it was disallowed you would be you would be imprisoned if they heard that you would have had performed it but at the at the world's fair all the all the uh, all the ghost dancing they could possibly do was accepted and put into the stadium where 5000 people could see it isn't for that for exposition yeah. for the exposition yeah so again all of these fake battles i mean when we start thinking you i remember you mentioned something about video games and the way uh, a war had been portrayed years ago, whatever. Now, of course, the way that the the interaction between natives and, might say, white settlers and cavalry and cowboys have always been portrayed, well, that really comes out of 1950s Western movies. The way people uh, have come to believe that story is is Western movies, and I get the sense this was first starting to be showcased at the World's Fairs, that all of the interactions that were on the plains were shown first at the fairs, that was moved into consciousness. And then over time, once movies started, you just put it on the big screen. Nobody questions it's any different. Right. Well, that, that's, that is sort of one topic that I did want to, did want to touch on at least briefly as the programming aspect of the world's fairs, the expositions. Um, and I would hate to, honestly, I would hate to miss the significance of such a thing. So, um, so here we go. Here's another one then. I'll cut you off before we go into the next. But here's, because uh, I, I read this the last time and I think it needs to be read again. This is the equivalent of the Midway on the St. Louis Fair. It was known as the Pike and it was massive. I mean, picture Disneyland, but bigger. And these are just the historical things you could view on this Pike in St. Louis. Ancient Rome was a colossal exhibit with over 400 actors employed to give the visitor the illusion of going back in time to the life of gladiators. A large arena called the Hippodrome showcased chariot races, jousting, boxing, and gladiatorial clashes with 200 persons, 40 animals, including tigers, lions, and leopards. The finale was a reproduction of Nero's Rome burning. You had the Tyrorian Alps, a nine-acre reproduction. Nine reproduction of the Alpine region of Bavaria, Germany, had 21 village cottages, a cathedral, and giant mountains. Visitors could ride a simulated tram car through the Alps where real cattle and real goats would be in pasture. Dancers and musicians entertained the crowd. The Jerusalem had 11 acres of 22 streets, 300 buildings. They replicated the stable where Jesus was said to be born, the Golden Gate, the Mosque of Omar, the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. 1,000 people from Jerusalem traveled to the United States to work at the exhibit. You could walk down the streets of Cairo. You could go to the streets of Seville and see, uh, and see areas of the Gypsy Lane in Barcelona. The Great Siberian was a train ride that made you feel like you were going completely across the, the Soviet, the, the uh, Russia. The Irish village had 
had a replica of St. Lawrence's Gate. Paris replicated the medieval times. There was Constantinople, the Chinese village, the streets of St. Louis. The Boer War was fought daily inside the Colosseum. This is what's going on at the St. Louis World's Fair every day. It's, 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 it's mind-blowing to figure what that would have been like. And like you say, what kind of conditioning could have been presented in such, in such, uh, in such a thing? Right. And this is, this is uh, not necessarily prior to movies, but they were still a fresh technology. Um, and one of the things that we definitely, or I definitely studied in school because I studied film um, was not only the subliminal effects of movies and television, but also like how it could, how it shaped how you saw your world. And it wasn't just through the overt window dressing of all of that, you know, like, Oh, it's just like, what movies did when they became, for example, more violent is they sort of funneled people into this mindset of thinking that like, oh, like at the end of the day, the most extreme thing you can do to change something in your society is to get violent, right? Uh, you sort of see this in these movies like uh, Falling Down. You ever see that? No. No? George has seen that. Um, John Wick. Yeah. No? Yeah. Uh, and then there's all these movies coming out right now about sort of middle-aged guys getting really mad at society and like losing it and going out and shooting a bunch of people, right? Hmm. It's sort of like it's sort of like funneling people into this one way of saying, thinking like, well, at the end of the day, if everything goes poorly, I can just shoot people. <laughs> and you, well, depending on what kind of movies you watch, um, it's kind of it's just kind of stunning to me that like. Uh, well, when you mentioned cowboy movies, especially like most of those came from Italy, they were sort of like this romanticized vision of the West, that sort of thing. And with the World's Fair, you sort of like got all of these like world, like almost like world spanning narratives, right? About yeah. like how history went. Here's how we got here. The Spanish did this. The Italians did that. And then there was Rome and there were the Boers in there somewhere. And it's all here at one show and you can just get it all for one ticket. Yeah, and I, I really think that in the days before television and radio and whatever else, especially if you're starting with a fairly new population, and this is a hard thing to start grasping, but this is also the same time the fairs are going on is the same time these weird orphan trains are running all across the United States, where tens of thousands of children are being put on trains and shipped out west. And the question starts to become, well, where are these children coming from? Really, like you know, there's a historical explanation, but the historical explanation is just is just so poor, and and you just you just dump ten thousand kids on a train and like send them to you know send them somewhere in the west, and like what really happens to them? What do they? What becomes of them? But it's the perfect thing you would do after a reset, if you're like if you're wanting to reset the whole culture and the whole mindset of everything. Well, of course, the best thing to start with is children, because children will have very little personal experience. They'll have no knowledge of anything. They'll believe whatever you tell them. And if the few adults that are in the, in the, in the uh, teaching area all say the same things, the children very quickly will fall into line. As soon as they grow up and they put 20 years on them, they now are the complete adult uh, teaching tool for the next generation. And there'll be no one in there that will be disputing it. And if you did dispute it at the time, we had these wonderful insane asylums. So the, the insane asylums during this period are, they're all over the world. Every city has an insane asylum. They're bigger than the Medici Palace, and they're built more, more intricately than the Medici Palaces in Florence. So 
so if you're building these things, why would you be building palaces to hose um, insane people? And secondly, why are there so many insane people? Why are there all of a sudden this need to have millions of people all over the world in insane asylums, unless what you're now calling insane are people who remembered the old world, the old way of doing things, and weren't going to give that up. And you had your choice, join the new world or you're going in here. And I would not be surprised to see something quite similar start to happen today. As things make the big change in the next year or two, if you don't follow along with it, we'll see what's going to happen to you. You're insane. Yeah. You're insane. (laughs) That is interesting because there is almost this historical theme of insanity, right? At a certain period in history, (laughs) underlined by movies, right? Where there's like, oh, this guy's in an insane asylum. What was the movie? Uh, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So like that's that's set in one of those asylums that's old and, you know, What's it? What's going well, on? Of course, there? that was a totally different message, right? That that was Ken Ken Kesey, I think, the guy with the 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 bus, and whatever. And his real message of that was it was it was a representation of our. It's Plato's cave, basically. It's it's the story of Plato's cave, just just placed in an insane asylum. So McMurtry, who later in the movie, a, a lot of the the movie cut out a lot of the key stuff from the book. So you have to kind of read the book to know what's what's really being presented. But the the uh, Jack Nicholson character is playing McMurtry he's actually put into the insane asylum. But what blows his mind is he finds out the other inmates are there voluntarily. They're not actually forced to be in the, in the asylum. They can leave whenever they want. They're just too afraid to leave the asylum. They would rather, in a sense, they'd rather stay in the prison cell than go out and experience the world. And really the whole book is the story of the chief, Chief Broom, of how he sort of overcomes all of his inner demons and his inner his inner traumas and everything of his life to symbolically, uh, not symbolically, but actually does break out of the, out of the, um, out of the cuckoo's nest. And of course the cuckoo's nest really represents our world. He's saying that modern society is the cuckoo's nest and that the average person has chosen to just plug themselves into this even back in the sixties, plug themselves into the system and not think about it, not have any critical thought about it, not just follow along with everything and that was in the 60s. That's long before PCs and iPhones and, and everything else that literally is just particularly young people and, and young men, unfortunately, specifically has just sucked them in and basically sucked them away from the real world and the natural world. And Cuckoo's Nest is even even bigger and, and more controlling than it ever was. Hmm. Well, that makes me want to go back and, and ask. So these these kids that were put on trains and whatnot is there mm-hmm. any indication of where they came from or is it just like it's something like there's too many poor parents in New York and and whatever else and they just couldn't look after their children and so they sold them for a few dollars or or uh, the parents died of tuberculosis and uh, they and these all these orphanages were overfilling and uh, that's Another the story thing. and 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 it's it's presented well enough that it's like you, you, if you didn't think about it, you go, yeah, okay. I could see that. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense a bit. But on the other hand, if you've all of a sudden got a hundred thousand orphans in your city, there would be a huge cry to start fixing something fast. Like, mm-hmm. Hey, if all of these adults are all dying really fast, we better find out what's going on and change that. And we don't hear any of that part of the story. We just hear all of a sudden we got these kids, let's ship them on trains. But if you've had some sort of, let's call it, if we, and this is just speculation, right? I can't fully prove any any of this stuff, but the speculation could be 
let's kill off a large percentage of the adult population in some way that doesn't kill off the kids. And now we ship the kids to areas where we want them, or you have special breeding programs almost that just produces as many kids as you need um, at the right time when you, when you have the conditions right and you've sort of wiped everything out that, that you want to wipe out. You start with the kids and yeah, in 20 years, they'll believe anything, anything you've told them, right? That story, Milan, that I started with, right? Uh, Milan Kundera, right? The, uh, the author. First step in liquidating a people is to erase its memory, destroy its books, its culture, its history, then have someone write new books, manufacture a new culture, invent a new history. Before long, that nation will begin to forget what it is and what it was. The world around it will forget even faster. Hmm. That's a perfect description of how, how easy and quick it is to literally erase history and produce a new narrative that will just automatically be believed. And, and it makes me wonder a ton. I, I'm probably not going to be here in 10 years. I, I, I don't know if I'm going to make it five years, two years. I don't really know how long I've got left in this place. But in 10 years time, whoever's still here and whoever can still critically think, what's history going to tell them in 10, 20 years of what we're going through right now? What, well, how is what's going on now going to be presented then? And there's a big hmm. part of me that says, you know, the only thing that might have real value is some people putting together the real history of our period as we're going through it right now, what's really going on, what's really happening, what's really being presented, seal it up somewhere, hide it away, and hope some people in the future will find it and then maybe go kind of like what we're doing here at the World's Fairs and they're thinking, wait a minute, I've got something that's saying in 2021, the whole world was different. Wait a minute, what? Well, here's here's the point I'd like to make. <clears throat> well, George and I on our show, we're interrogating history. You know, I've been researching for this show for right almost four years now it's ridiculous and we of course both studied history in college he studied it more than i did he's got credentials and things <laughs> um but i don't but the point is like i've been tearing away at historical narratives and it wasn't until probably hatfields and mccoys or something like that some piece of americana even hugh glass gave me a weird feeling uh we covered uh hugh glass the guy who fought the grizzly bear they made a movie about mm -hmm. him the revenant yep yep um interrogating these stories i was like i kept running into these elements that i was like this is almost too good to be true like this content writes itself like what are the odds that there would be all of this stuff here like the family fighting over a pig or hugh glass fighting a bear surviving crawling to a fort then crawling away then fighting another bear like it's it was too good but if you go further back with more ancient history and that sort of thing there's some elements in there that are kind of funny but american history in particular that really like americana stuff you know, it, it, it almost like, it feels like, it feels like a movie that's waiting to be made. Right. Um, and I also wanted to point out that like, we have been really like digging hard at all this, on all this history and what you were saying about ease, how easy it is to forget. I never even knew half the stuff that we've covered. Um, 90% of the stuff we've covered from college classes, uh, from studying it. Um, and I'm thinking to myself, huh, well, I know that I'm the one making the history podcast, but all of my neighbors couldn't even tell you who Trotsky was. Right. right. And so I'm like, well, how does a culture forget an entire narrative? Easy, easy. They make a movie about it and you get it in 90 minutes. <laughs> and nowadays you get it, you know, your 20 minute episode of like some historical story. And that reprograms everybody to think that something happened that didn't happen or something uh, changed or something didn't change. I mean, it's, it's crazy to me, but that, that is how we bottle up our history these days. And I could see how we could forget something really easily based on just that alone. But 
It's kind of a George? crazy rant for me. I'll make sure you're you're there if you've got something to add or go into. Um trying to trying to think of something something intelligent and constructive to say, which is always a struggle for me. Um <laughs> being too humble. Yeah, I guess what is the in your in your opinion and going on what you were just saying, Aaron, so what's the what is the end game in terms of sort of the condensation of history into these uh you know twenty minute episodes or ninety minute features? What what's the goal? Why not just uh because I think all the inaccuracies, errors and uh what aside, you know many of these things are based vaguely on something that, you know, did occur in some way. What's the point of sort of diluting and condensing the history into these little vignettes instead of just say, ignoring it completely. And like here, watch another sci-fi star Trek. Well, a couple of things. I mean, first of all, I think all of history is so important because it explains where we are now. So the historical narrative is, if you if you want to say anything, like, why do we have, uh, if you're in the U.S., why do we have a president or in, the, in Canada, why do we have a prime minister or why do we use money or, you know, any of these things that, like, especially a kid might ask, the answer will be, it'll always be a historical answer. Oh, well, at one time the world was like this and then these things happened and then these people thought that this would be a good idea and that's why we are where we are. Okay. It's, it's like becomes an explanation tool. And the key is if, if you want to have certain things in the public mindset, in the average person's mind, um, to agree with whatever's going on or whatever the way things are, if you present history in a certain way, there'll be little for anyone to go be able to wait, go back and say, but wait a minute, here was a time from when before we didn't have this and life looked way better. Like when I go back to the history of like, uh, 1457 or something, and, and I get all this information. This sounds great. So why are why aren't we doing this anymore? Because what we're doing is is insane. So part of the idea of compartmentalizing history is you don't want to just eliminate it completely because people might start asking too many questions. You present it simple pieces that fit the uh, answers that you want the average person to simply believe about where we where we were and where we are now. On a greater scale, of course it's to reduce the knowledge of human power. Because if you really go back into history and really examine these buildings and these structures and these pyramids and these sites, you'll begin to see that this came from human, a deep human power that all of us have access to right now if we, if, if we knew it was there and could access it. And one of the easiest things to do is make the people in the past look stupid and uh, unevolved evolution is very important to this this concept unevolved not as not as great as us we have these we have airplanes and iphones and washing machines so we're much greater than these people in ancient greece and and in ancient egypt and mexico i mean they were they were stupid look at lady waratoga haha aren't they crazy mm. as opposed to saying but wait a minute what's the honest truth of what they what they knew how they lived what they could actually do how did they interact with the world, with nature? And if you eliminate that questioning from people's minds, you eliminate the questioning of in the moment going to look to say, how much power do I really have? Hmm. What, 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 what can life really be? So to me, it's, it's these dual elements of, 
of, of, of manufacturing and massaging history, you might say, in a way that fits explaining why we are where we are, where we are is great, and you shouldn't question anything about it because it's so much more fantastic than life used to be, ever. Well, you want to hear something interesting. Here's a thought. Um, when I was growing up, it seemed like the historical narrative was sort of like, oh, well, we started as like bugs. We were terrible. And over the course of our development as human beings, we've become so, so great, right? We've come so far. We, we, get, we built the planes, mm -hmm. then we built the spaceships, and we went to the moon, and we went to space, and now we're going to Mars. And it was sort of like this positive vector, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. all throughout my life, I was like, we're going to make it, boys. Like, this is going <laughs> to be great, right? And then it seems like the last, I don't know, maybe 10 years, there's been like this sort of like sea change where it's like, oh, well, actually, everything we thought about ourselves was horrible. And everything we thought we knew, we don't know. And everything that you thought made, you know, humanity great is terrible. And everything about all of the, everything you've ever done has actually been bad. And it's been like this, this reversal of this narrative that I grew up with and resisting yeah. that is next to impossible because it seems to permeate everything I see. Like everything is telling me I'm terrible all of the time. And uh, it takes a, it takes some, um, it takes a lot of hard thinking to get through something like that. I don't know if you've noticed anything like that, but is that part of a reset? Probably, you know, whatever that, whatever we're going through now is, is, I mean, it is a historical event. It's not just, it's not just some, some things that are going on. I mean, we, we are in not only insanity, but we are in a massive change. Hmm. The world that, the world that we all knew of 10 years ago, 30, 40, 40 years ago, it's gone. Like it's gone. It's never coming back. That we can say that for sure. It, it is being wiped completely from this experience. Now, what we're what we're going to be heading towards, that's still totally unknown. But for anybody that's holding on to the old way or the old the old wants, or you know, I really want to go back to the way things were, that's it's over. That's not going to happen. So you really have to start. You really have to start trying to look back. Well, are were there other periods just like this historically? This is again why well, history is so important. History is not about the past. History is about the present. History is about being able to dig into what happened somewhere that's similar in the past. How did people respond and react and think? How can we look into the present and get an idea of what's probably coming and and how it's going to look? So, if there were other resets in the past, which I'm guaranteed there were. How can we look through those? How can we see what may or may not have happened? And more importantly, how did they come out of it? What was different about going into it and coming out of it? That can start giving some ideas of, of what we're going to be dealing with in the next six months, two years, five years, whatever. We are, you know, we're, we're, we're in a major historical shift. Mm -hmm. um, not, not by our, and you might say, not by our own personal want. It's being, it's being by some force is being, dumped down on us and uh it's it's going to change and the question is change into what right well let me ask you both the question uh you guys remember the tagline for the last star wars the new ones that ruined everyone's opinion of star wars remember those you remember the tagline you don't remember the tag let the past... i was never into star wars in the let... first place okay <laughs> all right all right <laughs> the tagline was let the past die kill it if you have to Ooh. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. Huh, suspicious. And they, you know, everyone's like, oh, they were just talking about, you know, 
But hey, that seems to be some kind of a sentiment that we're experiencing today with the whole year zero great reset nonsense. Um, You know, I I even told my old co-host, James, I said, at some point, people are going to call you backwards and lost and, you know, fill in the blank, all kinds of negative names. Are you okay with that? And he said he was okay with that. I honestly never expected it to to be to get to a point where I was like, wow, like I am a history podcast. I could be censored just for being a history podcast. I assumed it would have to be for controversial content, but for just being about history, it's it feels like that's coming down the pike. Yep, that, that'll be on that. the list. Yeah, <laughs> again, well, again, the George Orwell idea, right? If you to control the present, you control the past, hmm. and if you control the present, you control the future. So if you really want to control the future, you control, not that you control the past specifically, you control the perception of it. And that's, that's what you're starting to see in a big way. And it's going to get, yeah, wild. Well, what would you predict um, in the coming years regarding uh, censorship or adjustment of history? Well, George, you go first. You probably got a, you probably got an opinion. Well, put it, uh, put it this way. Um, like very much sort of like Aaron said, it's, it is accelerating at a rate that I don't think any of us really foresaw 10 or even, even five years ago. And, you know, not just, not just in terms of, you know, sort of the censorship of discourse, but just everything, everything is accelerating so fast. Like, you know, things that uh, 10 years ago would have sounded like they belonged in some sort of dystopian, uh, you know, sci-fi movie are now being talked about like space billboards or something people are actually talking about, about, you know, literally taking away the stars and the night sky in order to make room for more advertising. Blotting out 10 the years sun. ago, who, who would have believed that? Yeah. Blotting out the sun for was one in it's live in the pod, eat the bugs, all that. I mean, it's accelerating at a rate that it's, it's not sustainable. It has to either get somewhere and it's not going to be good where it gets or go off the rails and come crashing down and just a, you know, fiery conflagration, which isn't going to be pleasant for anyone, but which is probably preferable to getting wherever we're going. Wow. That's well said. Yeah. That was a really good comment that that sums up a lot of, and, and it's like you say, it's so fast. I started noticing around 2003, 2004, the time was speeding up. Yep. I started noticing that what would normally take me 40 minutes was now taking me 50 minutes. And it's, and I wasn't much older. I was, you know, I'd moved from like being 28 to 32 or something. So it's not like I'm getting slower or, you know, or whatever. I'm not an old man yet. This was, I was still, still a young guy and, but things were taking way longer. And so I said, okay, how could I prove the possibility that that time is actually different? Because of course the watch, the, uh, what we know as a clock, that's just that's just marking the movement of the sun in a circle, right? It's moving. That's all it's telling us. If the sun moves faster or slower, that shouldn't make any difference to the way the clock is is um, philosophically set. It doesn't matter if it's fast or slow. The clock will still show twenty four hours, and it'll still tick around, right? So I said, okay, how can I how can I think start proving this? But this is about two thousand four, two thousand five, just at, just around when I was having my death experience. And I thought sports, because sports are timed, except baseball, of course, but sports are timed. And I started thinking, okay, if, if we have less time than we did before, scoring should be going down because there should be less actual time in, say, a 60-minute game to, to score on your opponent. And when I started, and I thought, okay, but when I started looking in that, NHL hockey scoring had been going down at a drastic curve for about six or seven years. 
And uh, huh. okay, there's you could say there's there's talk about well, it's different different defensive strategies and coaching or whatever. But the, no matter what, the end result is less goals. The NBA. I remember watching the NBA in the '80s, and scores were you know. 110 to 108 all the time, you know, Julius Irving would be popping in 35 points a game. All of a sudden NBA, that's the scores are going down. Everything was, uh, everything was dropping from the standpoint of, of timed events, except baseball, baseball scores uh, were starting to go up, but that had to do, it's a non-timed event. And, uh, and uh, of course the games were getting, if you remember thinking baseball, the games were getting long. Remember, also talked about the, the baseball game just went two and a half hours. How is that possible? But that would make sense if, again, time is sped up. So, yeah, they've still played the nine innings. They still they've scored a few more runs, but they've added thirty minutes to the game because that's the clock time is different. So for me, once I in, once I took a look at the sports scores at the time, I started thinking, oh boy, it's got to be true. Then there has to be a there, time is changing because there's too many coincidental things. And, uh, and I've noticed it more and more and more getting what George is saying. There's, there's just things are going, think you just can't get the same things done in a day that you could before you have to really make, I have to make decisions. I have to get a list together. What's most important. And I do those first because I don't know if I'll get to them. If I would do it like I did years ago of just, I'll do this first, then I'll do this now. It's like, what's most important, get that done. That's interesting because see, I don't even need, (laughs) not, not. I didn't mean it like that. I didn't, I couldn't use something like baseball scores. Like I'm not a numbers guy, but I personally, like it does feel like there's not enough time in the day, but I'm still only working eight hours a day. I'm still only producing one podcast, but I feel like I'm running out of time every single week. Um, But it's, it's, it really does lead to that point that everything is speeding up and it feels like every single day, there's some, there's like 10 years worth of news. Right. Like we get 10 years worth of news stories every single day. There's like 10 disasters, um, you know, a million smaller ones. And uh, it's like there's no way to keep up with all of it. And then there's 10 different narratives running all the time about, you know, everything that's going on in the world. Um, And that's sort of how it's getting with history. And, um, you know, it seems like if you have the stability of one unifying narrative, um, that would almost sort of like end the spell of all of this chaos. So if someone came along and said, turn it all off. Here's what happened. You could almost erase everything we already knew. I don't know if that means anything to anybody, but. You know, yeah. I mean, of course, you know, we're, we're seeing the walls of Plato's cave. This is a huge element of understanding that we are just, we are just perceiving a reality. We're just, we're just sensing something and we don't really know what you're perceiving and you're sensing. I, I, I took five years to test reality, to, to find out how solid it and real is it. And, and it didn't come out to be solid or real at all. And uh, the, the question is, then it's, if it's not solid, it's very easy to manipulate. It's very easy to, and perception, that's, that's where the whole thing is. If you control perception, you control the entire mental state of humans. And if you can, if you can have billions of people having the same perception, then you solidify like the, 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 the solid, the solid element of the world the, on caves on Plato's wall comes from the projected idea from the person or people themselves onto what they're seeing. Right. Um, so it's this, it was this weird interactive element to it. So yeah, as soon as you, as soon as you make a sw- change to the perception of any, in any way, shape or form, you're going to change the way reality is going to look in one way or another. 
um, from the standpoint of, because like I say, I, I don't think this is going to change. Uh, George was talking about the ways this could go. I, I don't see, I, I'm 85% on this is going down the tubes and there's really nothing that can be done about it. But I also know that's not a hundred percent guaranteed. There's anything can, anything can happen because I don't know the future. And this is a, actually a world of complete possibility. Uh, there could be, but it's going to take, it's going to take a wrench thrown in the, in the machine to make it stop, to really make the whole projection reel stop for a while and really shake the whole thing up a bit. Like he, like he kind of said, it's something, something is really going to have to blow things apart for, for the majority of people's perception to stop what it's always been and kind of start going, wait a minute, what have we been dealing with our whole life? What's going on? What's really happening here? Mm -hmm. And without, if everything just keeps moving in the direction it's going to move to, that's not going to happen. Yeah. See, that's a, I know we're running out of time here, but I did want to say uh, it, that's what it felt like last year when all of these narratives really started to come into play. At least for me, it felt like everything stopped for like a week. And then suddenly it was just this amazing barrage of narratives and new frames for the world. You know what I found the most amazing part of our historical narrative in the last year? Hmm. There hasn't been one terrorist attack anywhere in the world. Anywhere. Like one major terrorist attack where something huge has been blown up, something, you know, uh, 300 people have been, you know, shot and murdered or whatever. Nothing. I mean, I guess the, the last big one was last Easter in Sri Lanka. Yeah. That was the last really big one. Yeah. I remember that. Over a year yeah. ago. And since then, nothing. So <laughs> what, what the, 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 the terrorists are, are afraid of going outside because they might, you know, catch something and die. So that's why they don't want to have their, their, you know, suicide bombing or whatever. I mean, that in itself is telling me something really weird is going on because if anything, it should be the opposite. If you are interested in, in, in destroying a, a civilization or a culture uh, through terrorist attacks, when that culture is reeling and is in, is in trouble in some way, you increase them, right? You, you've right. already got them in trouble, so make it worse. And here, nothing. It's all just fine and dandy. There's only one story in the news. When I did the thing, I'll, I'll end really quickly. When I when I was looking for a story to do with um, a couple of people that I, we have a talk with every month, and it was my turn to scour the news for what to talk about, you know, 20 things are all the one topic. And then eventually I had to settle on this, this weird mummy parade that happened in Cairo, right? Two weeks ago. This oh, was, the, the, the parade of the Kings. Yeah. This very, very bizarre ritual that, that happened on Easter Saturday, right? It also happened during Easter that they did this. And then two days later, they come out with a report of the greatest find since Tutankhamun, the golden city of Amenhotep and Akhenaten on, in, the, in the Luxor. And all there is is a picture of a crumbling stone wall and two scarabs and like a, and like a Ushabti uh, for the greatest discovery in history. No information of what they discovered, no information of even where it is, no information of why there's so much stuff there. It's like just this, it, they just want a golden city. And that was two days later. So you've got the mummy thing, bizarre. It looks like the Super Bowl. It reminded me of a Super Bowl, actually, of like pregame show, event, halftime show, event, and then bring the mummies out. And then two days later, Golden City. And it's, it was like so non-coincidental and so part of this narrative that we're in. It's like for anybody who actually knows what's going on, they know whatever that means, whatever switch is being flipped now. 
it, it was is, so weird. That is so weird. Just looking at these pictures, got them on like cars. I mean, in fairness, with how much Egyptology has slowed down, uh, a couple <laughs> of scarabs and a new Shepty might be the the, the largest <laughs> single find in the last few decades. It's not it's not like the 19 teens anymore when you get a royal tomb every year. <laughs> oh, when well, they were just building them out of plaster, one might say. No, I yeah. <laughs> But again, see to me, see to me, this is important because it's linking both of those stories very much are linking to a time period and they're linking to Akhenaten. They're linking to the time period of the strangest piece of Egyptian history. And of course, if you start digging into secret societies and occult to whatever, they all want to link themselves back to Akhenaten. And so what are they trying to say? That the reign of Akhenaten is coming back? Is this is this is this the message that they're because the the twenty two mummies are all from this period from around like you know the Tutmosis period to the end of the Ramses period that's who's supposed to be and which of course would be the Akhenaten period, and I was wondering, what's the message here because it's not accidental, and uh, I don't, it, I don't think the, I don't think that Moses especially the third would be very happy about being uh, considered <laughs> part of the Akhenaten period but that's that's no but you know what I mean. But yeah. no, but you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's this, it's this idea that I was, uh, my feeling was, even though they had the 22 mummies, the, the focus on Akhenaten period was what they really wanted to, to bring into the public's eye. And, and, and that mm -hmm. whole story of the golden mm -hmm. mummies, it was all about Akhenaten, Tutankhamun, but even, but they, but way down at the bottom of the article, there might, but actually the city was built by Amenhotep III, Akhenaten's father. But you don't want to focus on that. Akhenaten is the is the message you want coming huh. out. Well, I certainly hope that the uh, they don't bring back the Amana art style because I'm honestly not a not a fan. I don't know how anybody can be a fan of any of that period. It, it is just the strangest piece of history, <laughs> and and makes no sense. I had said this somewhere else. It's like again, if you think because Akhenaten closed all the temples, right? Eliminated the old religion, changed the artwork, right? Changed everything. And I don't care that you're a pharaoh. The e Egyptian priesthood at the time was pretty huge, pretty pretty high in magical powers. One dude couldn't have couldn't have overthrown everything like that just by himself. Something else was going on, and we talk about reset. There's a perfect example of a reset. That's the only way you could describe what happened there. There was a reset. Didn't maybe it didn't last very long. But that's what it was. Interesting. Good God. I feel like we're just getting to the really, really nitty gritty good stuff here at the end. Um, but we, we can always do this again sometime, Aaron. You know, it's. Hey, maybe maybe next time we'll just do an entire episode on Antarctica or the moon landing or something like that. Um, because yeah. those are topics that have been coming up. It's really weird. A lot of my friends just like, what do you think about the moon landing? I'm like, where were you five years ago? <laughs> But Antarctica, yeah, there's not been enough put out on that. That that's a really good subject that you guys should really look into. Yeah, I think that would be. I don't know how to look into it though, because everything's like disappearing as faster than I can find it. Like even information. We have to go. We have to go there. We have right? to go. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's we'll only start. We'll start. We'll we'll steal a boat in the Tierra del Fuego and make our way down. All right. How are you coming with? <laughs> if you guys can think you can get to Antarctica, and particularly if you've got like a small plane where we can get up high enough and get a look, yeah, I'll come. All right. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll just contact Bertrand Picard and grab his balloon and see if we can get him to take us there. 
But I, I think we've taken enough of your time for today. I, I did want to say, though, uh, George, did you have any final questions before we wrap up here? No, I'm just, I'm just thinking about Akhenaten and stuff, you know. Well, I don't like even know what did. those names are. I've never looked into Egypt, which is kind of ironic, I suppose. But Well, there's something something for you to look into down the road. It's You'll find it's very strange. Before it's gone, right? Oh, no, I'm pretty sure that will be here to study as much as you want for as long as you want. <laughs> they won't let that one go away, huh? I don't think so. Interesting. Well, on that note, um, I'm not even sure how to end the interview. Thank you, Howdy, for coming on again. Apologies for ruining the first one. <laughs> but... Yeah, but this one this one turned out to be also really interesting. We, yeah. we didn't talk as much about the fairs, but we, we covered a lot more topics and a lot more things. So yeah. I actually sometimes prefer these... that. I prefer that because it feels like uh, you've got a lot more to offer than just the fairs. Um, and I said it to my brother. I said, you know, I was I went upstairs and I was I was so, so angry because the moment I saw that file and it was 26 minutes, I was like, it was so good. He said everything that was good. And then I thought about it. I'm like, yeah, but about 25 minutes of that was probably just retreads of other shows he's done. And I was, I kind of said to him, I said, we really got into like discussing education and history as a whole, great resets and all that stuff at the very end. And I wish we could have talked about it more. So honestly, I'm kind of pleased we got to cover a breadth of topics on this one. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. Well, we'll go from there. See what, uh, see what kind of comments and questions the people who are going to listen to this have to say. And then, yeah, down the road, if we want to do something again, we can always pick it up and go forward. All right. Well, in that case, uh, Thank you, Howdy, and thank you, George, for being here. Uh, thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. Look, right. Yeah, lo- looking, fo- looking forward to uh, oh, this one working, hopefully, keeping the fingers uh, crossed. Yeah, thank you for coming on, Howdy. This was a lot of fun. Um, we should, next time, if we do this again, we should talk more about Akhenaten. <laughs> sure, was- we can go into that, or, you know, we've got a hundred things we could talk about, you know. Yeah. Well, I, I'd love to talk to you about perception sometime. So, you know, keep that in mind because we did briefly touch on that. We'll go from there. And yeah, thanks again, guys. And uh, good luck with continuing with the shows. And uh, hopefully, hopefully people are finding you. And, uh, you know, I'll let my people on my channel know about it when this is up. And um, we'll see what happens for you. All right. Thanks again. Howdy. Cheers, guys. Well, that concludes our interview with Howdy McCoskey. And one of the things I forgot to do at the end of the second recording was let him plug his sites and where you can find him. Um, his website is Egyptian Wisdom Revealed. And uh, his uh, YouTube channel, uh, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't just pull it up, is Howdy McCoskey Talks on YouTube. And he's been, he's been uh, putting out some stuff on the uh, Knights Templar and all this interesting stuff recently and there's there's uh there's a lot of good information on there it's uh, it's all very interesting and of course it is all alternative history and if you can handle that which i'm sure if you've gotten this far you can it's worth checking out and uh that that does do it for our first complete interview on we talk about dead people we hope you enjoyed yourself and if you are new please consider listening to uh, some of our past episodes, it's not the same thing, obviously, and Howdy McCoskey has only just appeared now when we talk about Dead People's Radar, um, but in the past we've covered a lot of strange Americana history, a lot of strange historical topics as well, and we are we are fairly critical of the mainstream narrative, just to be perfectly 
uh, honest. We weren't at the beginning, so whatever you do, <laughs> here's my recommendation. Do not go back to episode one. We were a very fresh podcast back then. But uh, scrub through our catalog and see if there's something strange or interesting you would like to you would like to look at. Um, oh, and also be cognizant that I... <laughs> have switched co-hosts since beginning this this show as well um but with all that being said uh we'll close out and let the sounds of ancient egyptian wisdom play you out the missile knows where it is at all times it knows this because it knows where it isn't by subtracting where it is from where it is or where it isn't from where it is, it obtains a difference or deviation. The guidance subsystem uses deviations to generate corrective commands to drive the missile from a position where it is to a position where it isn't and arriving at a position where it wasn't, it now is. Consequently, the position where it is is now the position that it wasn't and it follows that the position that it was is now the position that it isn't. In the event that the position that it is in is not the position that it wasn't, the system has acquired a variation, the variation being the difference between where the missile is and where it wasn't. If variation is considered to be a significant factor, it too may be corrected by the GEA. However, the missile must also know where it was. The missile guidance computer scenario works as follows. Because a variation has modified some of the information the missile has obtained, it is not sure just where it is. However, it is sure where it isn't, within reason, and it knows where it was. It now subtracts where it should be from where it wasn't, or vice versa. And by differentiating this from the algebraic sum of where it shouldn't be and where it was, it is able to obtain the deviation and its variation, which is called error.